This episode features depictions of graphic violence, infectious disease, and medical trauma. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Please note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single depiction of Sekhmet's demons. Today's episode combines elements from a number of ancient Egyptian myths and legends for dramatic effect. Hello, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original from Parcast. Each week, we travel the world in search of the most epic creatures from myth and legend, exploring who they are, where they come from, and what they say about the culture they terrorized. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we return to ancient Egypt to check in on our old friend Sekhmet, the lion-headed goddess of vengeance and violence. There's one aspect of Sekhmet we haven't explored yet, her role as a goddess of healing. Ancient Egyptians prayed to her for help when recovering from injuries and illnesses, but just as she can give health, she can take it away. She has a troop of demons at her beck and call, specifically devoted to this purpose. These deadly beings are invisible, carried on the rush of the wind. They are her archers, her messengers, her murderers, the Kaiti, the plagues of ancient Egypt. Coming up, death stalks the streets of Memphis. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. If you've been keeping up with our ancient Egyptian season, you may remember Sekhmet, the lion-headed daughter of Ra, She protected her father, the pharaoh, and all of Egypt from threats at home and abroad. But even in her softer guise as a goddess of healing and medicine, she was incredibly powerful. And dangerous. Because while she governed health, she also governed sickness. And she had no qualms about using illness as another weapon against those who offended Ra. 
Her primary weapons were the Seven Arrows of Sekhmet, a euphemism for her demons of pestilence. Sekhmet's seven arrows were commanded by Tutu, a deity who was usually depicted as a sphinx, a creature with the head of a man and the body of a lion. But during the last five days of the year, which followed the Egyptian rainy season, Sekhmet would send 12 more demons to the populace, the Kaiti. Their name is sometimes translated as murderers or messengers, and they were said to shoot diseased arrows from their mouths. Though we have illustrations of Tutu from ancient times, we have far fewer clues as to what the demons he led might have looked like. The Egyptians depicted many monsters in their art, but Sekhmet's demons are conspicuously absent from tomb and temple walls. Like their real-life medical counterparts, these threats were invisible, traveling from person to person by wind and water. The only way to fight off these monsters was prayer and ritual, but even that might not be enough. Sometimes the offense the people had committed against Ra during the previous year was too severe. The only answer at these times was to hide and pray that Sekhmet's messengers didn't come to your door. Marisank bid farewell to the cheesemonger as he closed up his stall. Safe Aket, she said. It was polite to wish everyone a safe and happy flooding season, even if the season wasn't happy at all. These were the days when the river rose and the world could end. When the year finished, no one could be sure it would begin again. The gods had their five birthdays, and the sun was meant to rise afterwards, but there was no guarantee. Every Egyptian had to pray together. As a nation, they willed the river back to its banks and the sun back to the sky. But those were divine challenges. For the people on the ground in the city streets, the season brought other terrors too. Memphis was Sekhmet's city, but she would not spare it from her wrath. Her demons prowled the streets for five days and five nights, searching for any opening, any weakness, any sign of hubris that allowed them to steal into the house and strike down those she saw as non-believers. There would be no forgiveness, not until the sun rose again to start the year anew. Perhaps the flooding would end then, Maybe it wouldn't. It wouldn't matter for those struck by Sekhmet's arrows. Their suffering was slow and immeasurable, racked by fever and chills, moaning and wasting away before their family's eyes. Marisank was no stranger to this sort of suffering. She tried not to think of her husband Iamesu as she trudged through the rain, clutching her groceries close to her body. This food would have to last until the new year, and it should be enough, but she needed to hurry. Sekhmet's demons would begin their terror at sundown, and the sky was so dark with clouds that she could not know when it began. Her heart quickened its pace, and her breath was short as she ran down the empty street. All of the houses in Memphis were shut up tight. She would receive no help from her neighbors, no matter how loudly she banged on their doors. After all, no one knew what demons perched on would-be visitors' backs. No one cared that Marisank's husband was dead. Now, the thoughts of her husband were impossible to hold back. The thoughts of his end. 
the fever, the boils, the agony, and then... Nothing. It was the nothing that hurt the most. She'd watched his Ka leave his body for the underworld. She told herself his suffering was over, but the sight of his feverish, blistered body always appeared when she closed her eyes. Marisank would not be caught outside tonight for all the world. She couldn't go through that again. She couldn't let their son go through that again. She ducked through the courtyard and into the main room of her mud-brick house, closing the palm log door behind her. Her 12-year-old Amos was playing with his toys on the floor, or rather he was lying beside his toys looking forlorn. Marisank checked the windows on the bottom and top floors, making sure they were secure. Then she stoked the embers in the cook fire and asked Amos what was wrong. Amos avoided her eyes. I can't find Patal. Marisank sighed. Patal is a very smart cat. For all we know, she's on the roof or visiting another family. Perhaps that was wishful thinking, but there was no helping it now. They wouldn't be able to go searching for the cat for five days. She told herself that five days was nothing, as long as the river didn't reach them. If that happened, they would have to decide between demons and drowning. She took out her knife and began to debone the fish she'd bought for their supper. Amos's eyes followed her. We have to help her, Mama. Marisank didn't look up from her slippery work. I told you, she's gone. A meow echoed from behind the door, barely audible in the downpour. Amos jumped to his feet and ran for the door. Patal! Marisank grabbed him. No, no, I'm sorry, my love. I'm so sorry. We can't open the door. Amos opened his mouth to argue. She cut him off sharp as a knife. No! No, I know you don't want to lose her, but I cannot let the arrows take you like they took your father. Amos tried to wriggle away from her. It would only be a second, Mama. Please! Marisank held fast. She swore she could hear coughing outside and screaming. Amos, listen to me. Listen! Suddenly, the meowing stopped, leaving only the pounding rain. Amos whispered Patal's name again, but the sound did not return. The cat was gone, if it had ever been at the door. Mother and child looked at each other. There was a long, painful pause. Then Amos's eyes flashed fire. I hate you! It wasn't the first time he'd said it, but it felt like the first time he'd really meant it. Marisank released him, her body going numb. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but we must think of ourselves. Amos crossed his arms as he walked towards his bedroom. You want her to die? Marisank's heart was breaking. Iyamasu would have known what to do, but Iyamasu was gone. I don't want anyone to die. We just need to think of... A loud knock on the front door silenced her. It was not an animal this time. It was the voice of a young woman whispering through the tiny gap in the logs. Help me, please. No one has opened up. The water is rising. The kite are in the streets. Please, you have to help me. A knot formed in Marisank's throat as she looked at her son. She pressed her finger to her lips to tell him to stay quiet. The knocking became more frantic. Please, please, they're coming. Ra, help me, they're coming. 
A strange sound carried through the rain, all too familiar, painful. She felt it in her chest, like her beloved Iyamesu was whispering in her ear, pleading for it all to end. A wet cough, a moan of agony, and beneath it all, an arrow whistling toward its doomed prey. Coming up, a demon comes to call. Now, back to the story. Marisank shivered with fear as the rain poured down outside. She looked from her son Amos to the front door, where a woman was pleading for her life. If Marisank opened the door, there would be nothing to stop Sekhmet's demons of plague and contagion from taking their prey. Marisank had tried to tell Amos they couldn't leave the house, but she could see him contemplating the unthinkable. She whispered, Don't you dare. You will kill us both. Think of what happened to your father. The knocking continued, nearly shaking the door on its hinges. The voice on the other side was rough with desperation. Please, I don't want to die. The voice collapsed into weeping. I'm so cold. Please, please. Oh, God, don't let me die like this. Amos walked towards the door. Time seemed to slow around Marisank, but she still couldn't reach him in time. She let out a scream of protest as he pulled the door open wide. A woman tumbled into the room, stumbling over her words as she knelt at Amos's feet. Thank you, oh thank you. Bastin Hathor bless you for this. Her white dress was edged with tiny beads that clicked and chattered as she shook with relief. Marisank finally managed to move, rushing past them to shut the door. She locked it behind her as the weight of her son's actions fully hit her. She let a small prayer pass through her mind. Oh, Iyamesu, do not let them take him yet. The woman was still sobbing at Amos's tiny 12-year-old feet. Marisank eyed her suspiciously. Stop that. Explain yourself. Why were you on the street? Why do you mock the goddess? The woman struggled to compose herself. Her skin was a rich red-brown, her hair a deep black with streaks of what almost looked like glinting gold. Marisank had never seen anything like it before. She wondered if the woman was of noble blood, and if so, what she was doing here. Marisank had no interest in being on the bad side of both Sekhmet and the pharaoh. The woman sat back on her haunches and took a deep breath. My apologies. How rude of me. I am Bastnofret. Thank you for your hospitality. Marisank didn't trust this at all. The girl had sidestepped the question. She edged back towards the gutted fish and the knife lying beside it. I have not offered my hospitality. Why have you come here? Were you followed? She wasn't sure if she meant by the palace guard or the demons. Basnofret coughed, which only made Marisank hold the knife tighter. The woman's voice shook as she tried to force the words out. I wasn't followed. I mean, I lost them. As if waiting for this very answer, a delicate but insistent knock came from the other side of the door. Marisank looked between Basnofret and the sound, trying to decide which was a more dangerous threat. The knock came again. Marisank glared at Basnofret in search of an explanation, 
Basnofret's eyes were wide, but she only shook her head in panic. Marisank pulled her son to her, wishing she could send him to another room, another world. But they had no chance if the girl had been pierced by Sekhmet's arrows. There was no way to know if it had happened, not until the final deadly descent had begun. She felt a scraping in her throat and a roiling in her stomach. Was the sickness growing already? The knocking came again. She expected pleading to follow soon, or shouting, or threats. Anything but the polite, clear voice she heard. Marisank, can you let me in? Marisank blanched as she heard her name. She didn't recognize the voice. How could he know her? There was a smile in the man's voice. It was how Marisank always imagined their cat would sound if she were given the ability to speak. Marisank, you have let one stranger in tonight. What's wrong with one more? She missed Yamesu more than ever. He'd always been so level-headed in a crisis. Basnofret pleaded with her eyes, Don't let him in. Please, please. Marisank grabbed hold of her hand, brandishing the knife again to keep her in place. She needed to be careful. She didn't know what sort of trouble she'd already gotten herself into. She raised her voice over the rain to speak to the new visitor. What do you want? A chuffing laugh came from the other side of the door. He invited her to meet him at the window. The closer Marisank listened, the more convinced she was that he wasn't alone. She swore she could hear the quiet jangling of weapons surrounding the house, the soft clacking of quivers against wooden bows. She told Amos to hide beneath the table and ordered Basnofret to sit by the fire. Then she crept to the window and looked out through a small crack. The man had tawny skin and golden eyes that glinted in the dark. He gave her a toothy grin. Thanks for seeing me. I know you're a devotee of the great lioness. You need not concern yourself with the safety of you or your boy. We have no quarrel with you. I only seek the woman who broke into your home. Marisank was confused now. He seemed to sense it. I've forgotten my manners. Forgive me. I am Tutu, the commander of Holy Sekhmet's Arrows, the Marshal of the Messengers, and the Seneschal of Sickness. It is an honor to make your acquaintance. Please open the door. We will take the woman and depart peacefully. I do not wish to kill children. It is unsatisfying. Marisank looked to her son. Amos's eyes were wide and terrified. She didn't know what to do. What do you say to such a man? Someone who talked about the death of children with the same tone of voice one might use to describe an undercooked meal. Was she going mad or was he? Tutu paused. Ah, you do not believe me. It is understandable. You mortals see the effects of my soldiers without the cause. He placed one large hand against the window frame. I will assist you. Marisank squinted into the rain. At first there was only water, but then her eyes slid past the droplets and onto something else, something barely distinguishable from shadows, outlined only by the water that skated off their hides. But they were there, a little more than half a dozen hulking shapes. 
Tutu had been true to his word. Sekhmet's demons were circling her house. Some of them were serpentine in shape. Others seemed to be men or dogs or lions. They stood taut and silent as Tutu let out a purring laugh from the depths of his throat. <laughs> Aren't they beautiful? Marisank swallowed a scream as he adjusted his weight in the light of the flame, revealing that his large hand was not a hand at all. It was a lion's paw. The only human thing about him was his head. He finally finished laughing. You have been given a rare gift, mortal. You have seen the arrows of Sekhmet. This is a lesson you must share with the other mortals. Now, give me what I want. Marisank's throat was choked with tears. She was shaking. Yamasu, my love, what should I do? Amos had tears in his eyes. Mama, we can't let them take her. Papa wouldn't let them. Marisank felt like her body was collapsing in on itself. Papa isn't here, Amos. She was stunned that she'd not seen the monsters before. Now it seemed as if they'd always been there. The serpent silhouette had been coiled around Iyamesu's neck at the end. The dog had sunk its teeth into his side. Or were those only her fevered imaginings? Had Iyamesu mattered to anyone but her and Amos? Did Basnofret matter to someone too? And if this was the end, wouldn't Iyamesu have wanted her to make an end worth remembering? She adjusted her grip on the knife and looked at Tutu. Do you remember my husband? Tutu blinked at her the same way Petal did when she lost track of a glint of sunlight. Then he sniffed haughtily. A soldier does not remember every man he kills in service to Egypt. Marisank stared at him. Perhaps you should. A low growl rose up from Tutu's chest. This grows tiresome, mortal. Marisank smiled. She knew what to do now. The answer to the question of what Iyamesu would want was clear. You're right, it does. But I also know the rules. I know that you cannot enter unless the house is breached, and I will outlast you. Five days and more, until the new year rises. Tutu let out a roar. You have chosen death! He leaned in close to the window frame. I may have forgotten your husband, but I will try to make your boy's end memorable. He raised a paw to the gang of silhouettes behind him. She watched them bend and twist in the rain, lowering themselves into battle position. She heard a thin creaking, like a harp string being pulled. It became tighter and tighter, humming with energy. Then the demons charged. Coming up, Marisank faces the final sickness. Now back to the story. The storm outside battered at Marisank's tiny house, tugging at the windows and doors. Marisank prayed that they would hold as Sekhmet's invisible demons lay siege to her home. 
It had been two hours since Marisank told the Sphinx Tutu that she would not let him or Sekhmet's demons into her home. She tried to tell herself it was the right thing to do as she peered out into the rain, watching Sekhmet's demons poke at the house's defenses. A long screech pierced the front shutters as an invisible claw ran down it. She heard a sliding hiss at the doorframe and barely managed to shove a quilt through the gap in time. And so it went for hour after hour. Marisank was drowning in doubt. She feared that she'd doomed them all. A familiar voice countered in her mind. But weren't you doomed already? It was Iyamesu. She missed him with every part of her soul, but she knew he wouldn't want her to give up. She needed to survive for Amos, and according to Amos, this stranger Basnofret needed to survive too. For now, they were a strange new family. It took a torturous day or two, but eventually the three of them fell into a pattern. Marisank started the cook fire. Basnofret maintained it, Marisank and Amos kept a watch on Tutu and the demons, checking the seal on each window and door with military precision. They played games, some of which Amos made up on the spot. Amos practiced his hieroglyphics with Basnofret's help. Marisank taught Basnofret how to not burn bread. Something was knocking at the back of Marisank's sleep-deprived mind, somewhere between dreams and waking. It was loud and hollow, but she couldn't place it. There was a clunk, clunk, and then a squeak. She struggled to find the words for what metal thing could screech like that. Then it came to her. Hinges. Marisank sprinted up the stairs toward the small room on the house's second level. Amos and Basnofret's confused shouts carried after her. She couldn't hear the words, just the echoes in her mind of how deeply she'd failed them. A shudder had come free in the storm. She could see it hanging precariously from the far window as she reached the landing. The demons could make their way inside at any moment. Marisank ran for the window. Something tackled her from behind. Tutu leered over her, two long fangs glistening in his still human face. Now you see me. Time seemed to slow around them as he chuckled. (laughs) Now you don't. He disappeared before her eyes. Marisank gasped. It took all her will to not collapse to the floor in a heap of despair and exhaustion. She called into the darkness. Please, it's my fault. Don't punish them for my mistakes. Tutu's disembodied voice echoed around the room. The world suffers for the failings of the individual. That is the will of the goddess, and that is the way of things. Marisank searched the shadows as subtly as she could, praying that the moon would return. My boy is innocent. He has so much left to do. You took his father. Marisank could hear the smile in Tutu's voice. I did. It haunts you, doesn't it? You know he lives on in the world below, and still it haunts you. Think of the next life, not this one. Here you are but a number, a part of Sekhmet's revenge on your pathetic population. Marisank took a deep breath to say something, anything, that could delay Tutu another minute, another hour. 
but the breath was strangely shallow and it hurt. She realized slowly that the ache in her stomach wasn't just nerves. It was sharp and hot. Her throat was tightening too, her limbs straining with pain. It was the sickest she'd ever felt and then some. A wet, itchy tightness was growing beneath her skin. Lumps were forming on her skin beneath her clothing. She could feel them. The signs of plague. She screamed for help, but no one came running. She told herself that was good. Maybe they would be safe. Or maybe Tutu just liked to play with his prey one at a time. A wet cough shook her whole body. She felt like she was drowning on land. Marisank had thought she understood her husband's suffering, but she'd had no idea. Marisank collapsed, moaning and crying as her irritated skin rubbed against the mud brick floor. Something heavy forced the wind out of her lungs. When her eyes could focus, she saw that Tutu had become visible again, pinning her to the brick. He pressed down on her with his paws. I'm going to enjoy this. Tutu opened his mouth wide. Marisank could feel the fever rising on her skin, the ache growing. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad to die. Then at least the pain would end. But how could she think that? She loved her son. He needed her. He needed to live. She threw her hands out in front of her in a desperate plea with Tutu. Wait, wait! Does Sekhmet want revenge or justice? The Sphinx paused, considering the question. Then he glared. I hate riddles. Marisank stared into his golden eyes. She fought the ragged pain in her throat to speak. It's not a riddle. Revenge is a feeling. Justice is balance. Your point is to teach us a lesson, is it not? So what is the lesson? Right now, there seems to be none at all. The odds of escape are random, and so are Sekhmet's blessings. Unless... She trailed off. The Sphinx echoed her. Unless... She finished the thought. Unless you reward the good in people, the change in them, and the potential of who they could be, just this once, they'll teach the lesson to others, and maybe... Maybe you will not have to come every year. The Sphinx stared, unblinking. Then he nodded slowly. A deal was struck. When Basnofred and Amos climbed the stairs, Marisank was standing by the closed shutter, perfectly healthy. They both looked at her, bewildered. She shrugged innocently. False alarm. The sun rose and the flooding of the Nile reached Memphis. It was small channels of water first. Then the streets were swallowed. Marisank held Amos close as the Nile filled their yard. She led him and Basnofret out onto their roof to watch the flood in safety. Marisank swallowed the cough that was waiting in her throat. She fought the pain that racked her body. She repeated the thought in her head, her promise to the Sphinx. I am the lesson, and they are the teachers. Amos looked up at her, worry lines running along his small face. Are you all right, Mama? Marisank tugged fondly at Amos's ponytail with a forced smile. 
He looked so much like his father. I'm fine, my love. Let's enjoy the view. So the three of them watched the horizon as the river continued to rise. Egypt had relatively advanced water treatment methods when compared to the rest of the ancient world, but the diseases they experienced were still devastating. Mummies have been found with signs of tuberculosis, leprosy, polio, plague, and various parasites, including malaria and worms. They even dealt with their own kind of air pollution thanks to sandstorms, indoor cooking, mining, and metal and stoneworking. Ancient Egyptian physicians were aware of the dangers of contaminated water and airborne particulates, but there was little they could do for many of their patients. Metalworkers couldn't stop metalworking. Farmers still had to wade through the flooded Nile, and sand got into everything, including their bread. Still, certain risks could be mitigated. Ancient Egyptian almanacs include various prayers and warnings, telling people how they should behave at times of the year when illness ran most rampant. Many of these traditions stand up well to the scrutiny of modern medicine. For example, the Nile's annual flooding left behind many animal corpses that could contaminate the river. Refraining from bathing or working in the Nile during these times lowered the risk of bacterial diseases and parasites. Many cultures view disease as a form of divine punishment, and the ancient Egyptians were no different. But the way that they coped with these threats is remarkable in its practicality. They created a monster that helped the people survive the dangers of their environment. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with another Egyptian monster. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Jen Riche, edited by Robert Teamstra and Nora Battelle, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Adriana Gomez, and produced by Joshua Kern. I'm Vanessa Richardson.